everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of the Cyber Threat Briefing from the Show Cloud Podcast. Um, this month, I'm joined as usual by Hugh Rayner. Hello. And again, this month by Aaron Dalton as well. So, welcome, guys. Hi, everyone. Hope you're both doing well. Certainly are. Good, good. Um, so, we've got a couple of topics of discussion this week. We've got three things to get through, essentially. So, we're going to talk about OneNote currently being used, um, has been used for the past couple of months for delivery of malicious payloads during kind of active campaigns against organizations. I'm going to kind of dig into that a little bit, talk about what we can decipher from it, some actionable um, takeaways from it as well. Um, a few weeks ago, there was a, an article around flaws in TPM. So what does that mean? What's the attack vectors here? Should we be worried about it, crucially? And then we're going to have an open discussion at the end around trending the line between good and bad in cybersecurity. So there's a, an article we'll cover off later on uh, in some more detail around how ethical hackers, a particular ethical hacker has been found as part of a, a ransomware group as well. So we're just going to have a little, a little open discussion into that and, and maybe what the future of the industry looks like from that perspective. Shall we get into it? We'll start off with the OneNote attack vectors from an attack perspective. These kind of came out in the, the news and have been known about since kind of mid-December time. And essentially, as, as the, the, the scene or the landscape for phishing attacks changes on a regular basis, Attackers have to find new ways, and one of the new ways that they found to to get through things, uh, to get through the, the defences and kind of filtering so on and so forth, is around using OneNote to deliver malicious payloads uh, to users. That's kind of the news article right now that's gone off and has been landed in the last couple of days. Um, so before we get into what that means, Aaron, would you be able to give us a, a brief history of phishing? So what did it used to look like? How easy was it? What's that now look like these days? Um, have things changed in that, in that time frame? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess in this case, we'll focus on email phishing in particular, I think is a good focus point. And email phishing is about as old as email itself, certainly as old as, as the internet itself being, you know, a widely connected uh, set of devices. So it started generally with either uh, chat rooms or email messages telling people to log in. You know, this was back in the day when trust was pretty much inherent in the internet's operation and people were more likely to click on things. Email was this new medium and they were excited to receive emails and click on things. So the original phishing emails were, were fairly straightforward. You know, It was just telling people to log in somewhere or attaching files and things like that. That's progressed over time as defenses have come into play and it's become much more difficult to send large-scale email attacks. Those low-bar phishing attacks that we've talked about in, in previous episodes, you know, sending out spam to millions of people isn't as effective as it used to be. It's not as profitable as it was in that sort of boom in the early 2000s when uh, chain mails and spam emails were rife and filtering hadn't quite caught up. We're now getting towards the point where attackers are having to be quite sophisticated and quite tactical in the way they evade the phishing defenses that exist in organizations, so whether that's your Exchange or Gmail filtering and the various controls you've got to limit attachments, to have uh, SPF, you know, sender protection frameworks in place to make sure you trust the other domain, so domain reputation comes into play. And in particular, this attack focuses on attachments and the the difficulty now in getting an attachment that you can have a user click on and then have something malicious happen. Okay, so it's uh, the landscape's significantly changed over the years, becoming more and more difficult. And I guess that's because there's, there's a lot of built-in protections into your more common mail providers, like you said, like like Gmail, like Microsoft 365, so on and so forth. And they are, from experience, relatively difficult to get by, you know, consistently. You know, the defences are changing quite regularly. So, yeah, good history there. Thank you, Aaron. Hugh, there's an extra point here that's relevant, right? So what is it specific to things like Word and Excel? based attacks previously. What's changed now there that means that we have to find new ways? 
Yeah. So basically, recently, you know, Microsoft disabled macros from being able to be used in in you know Word and Excel documents downloaded from the web, which is a huge blocker for these attacks. You know, macros being really useful for you know executing code on machines when those files are delivered, as, as Aaron said. Now, attackers are you know not just going to give up, right? Always looking for that that path of least resistance, and so basically just moved on to the the next available option, which yeah, as Aaron said, in this case is embedding VB code into OneNote files sent as email attachments, and because that VB file isn't itself the email attachment, it's subject to a lot lower level of checking, and so these documents are coming through. Typically, you know, we'll see things like the document is blurred out but it pertains to be something really important. And then there'll be a button that says, you know, click here to activate the secure document. And then underneath that button then is actually just a bunch of links to embedded VB files, which will then, you know, run that code on the on the machine. So it's a very similar way of working, you know, very similar outcome, just a slightly different method of delivery. And I think it's probably, you know, an issue that Microsoft are going to be facing, you know, eternally, right? As, as soon as they they lock some mechanism away, attackers are just going to come back and, uh, and find another alternative. It's the mechanism for getting things into an organization that's the thing that changes as opposed to the, the actual intricacies of what we're doing there. So previously we would have, you know, in a simplistic term, as, as Aaron mentioned back in the day, if you, if you like, we would have sent an email with an Excel file attached to it probably not had too many issues along the way. Someone opens that Excel file and, and runs a macro, and that's how we're looking to get the foothold on. Now, all that's changed really is how we deliver that macro into a, an organization, essentially to be able to run that code. And like you said, now it's the it's case where it's embedded within OneNote files, um, which are seemingly a lot easier to get into organizations, and therefore when you do run something, it's got a lot more trust on it than it would have um, alternative. Good. Okay, so it's the mechanism for getting things in is, is changing, but ultimately the fundamentals of how it operates is, is you know, roughly the same, so good. Um, so, Aaron, we'll come back to you now. How could this be remediated? What should organizations be doing now to remediate this type of attack? Yeah, so beyond all the usual phishing defenses that you'd have in place that we've discussed at length in various previous podcasts, for this particular type of attack, I would focus on looking at the OneNote attachment files specifically. So there are two things you could do. You could consider just blocking the one extension at your email filter. I appreciate, though, that for most organizations, that's probably a step too far because there are legitimate use cases for sharing a OneNote file. The alternate approach here, if you have a bit more of a, an acceptance to your risk appetite, would be to look at blocking specific extensions from being embedded within files. So uh, there's a, a group policy you can set to disable, for example, .vbs, .exe, .com, and a few other file types that you know are, are typically used for malicious activities. Just disable those from being executed when they're embedded in files. So look into just changing the way that you interact with those OneNote files. Okay, perfect. And then I don't think I've ever had a need to send a whole .file to someone. Usually just use the share within... OneNote type settings. So perhaps that isn't necessarily a bad shout if you've got an immediate danger. Perhaps that's the first port call. Block it and then figure out from there what to do. Excellent. Okay, guys. Um, I think that wraps that particular topic point up, unless there's anyone else that has anything to add. We'll move on to the next one in the list, which is around TPM. So TPM 2.0 flaws, which could be used to allow attackers or hackers to steal cryptographic information, ultimately. Feels like a, a decently sized topic, this one. And there's probably a few terms in here that the listeners may or may not be aware of. So we'll start from the top and then we'll work in from there. So Aaron, we'll come to you first and foremost. Could you explain what TPM is in, in the first instance, how that works, and then we'll get into the attack itself? 
Yeah, sure. So TPM is a fairly complex sort of TPM. Initially, it stands for Trusted Platform Module. And what this is, is it's normally a, in most devices, it's a hardware, a piece of hardware that's performing cryptographic functions. However, there are also software-based TPMs that do the same thing, but are emulated in software. But fundamentally, they are meant to be a hardware cryptographic platform that performs functions such as key generation, random number generation, as well as providing secure storage for those associated keys. And this is really useful because it allows you to do things like authentication using Windows Hello and biometrics and storing those locally. It allows you to store trusted keys that you can then use to uh, authenticate to various services and provide integrity of things like the boot process for Windows to ensure that uh, Windows loads securely and doesn't have malware attached to it. So it has a lot of great uses. BitLocker would be another one, in fact, for encryption of drives on Windows. BitLocker stores the key in the trusted platform module. So these are complex, small devices, basically, that have a, a lot of trust inherently built into them because of the nature of the security work they do in cryptography. And then they sit outside the operating system, right? So they, they run or can run as a chip on its own, on its own right. Yeah, absolutely. One way to explain them would be to consider them a system on a chip. They're a miniature operating system in and of themselves. Perfect. So who maintains and defines what the TPM chip does? Is it Microsoft? Is it an operating system? Is it like someone like Linux Foundations or is it, is it someone else? Yeah, it's someone else. There's a group called the Trusted Computing Group, and they're responsible for writing the specification. I think 15 or so years ago now, they released the initial specification. And then at the moment, we're on TPM 2.0, which I think was released initially around 2016, came into the public space a bit more around 2019. And it's a pretty long specification, actually. It's split into various parts, uh, thousands and thousands of pages long. And then vendors that want to implement this have to adhere to the specification. And as with anything, when you've got a long specification, the interpretation of that could lead to flaws or implementation variations that could have an impact. Okay, perfect. So TPM has been around a little while. We're on 2.0. What's the future of TPM? Is it here to stay? Is it going to be part of our lives more often moving forward? Yeah, very much so. So where we are today is that Windows 11, for example, Microsoft's latest operating system mandates that you have a TPM for you to be able to use the operating system. And that's specifically for the purposes of providing additional integrity and protections on Windows itself to prevent things like what used to be called rootkits, those sorts of Trojans that would embed themselves in the boot sectors of the drive and do things to modify the operating system before it even loads. So they're really difficult pieces of malware to delete from the system. And the TPM helps mitigate that by doing that integrity checking. So Microsoft mandates it. It's supported on other operating systems, various Linux implementations of the libraries are supported as well. So we're only going to see an increase, I think, in the use of trusted platform modules, or at the very least, interpretations of a trusted platform module that are dedicated to forming cryptographic security functions within our lives. Yeah, I think it's a pretty important step that Microsoft have decided Windows 11 is requiring one to be installed, in all honesty. Um, I know there's the Apple have the, they call it Secure Enclave, or however you want to pronounce it, but I think that's exactly the same principle, right? So it's an area of a you know, system in and of itself that can handle things like your biometrics and your only kind of Apple wallet bits and bits and pieces. So, okay, so the future looks good from this. It's going to be here for here for a while and here to stay. Big question then, Hugh, is is it secure? And we know it's not secure, hence we're talking about it, and there are a couple of vulnerabilities there. So do you want to dive into what those vulnerabilities are and what's been found? Yeah, certainly. So I guess the, the, on the, you know, is it secure? That is, it's more of an interesting question than it first appears, right? So there's a few things we have to look at. First off, you know, is it's typically a hardware piece, right? So 
do you trust the manufacturer? If you don't trust the manufacturer of that TPM to, you know, not have your unique seed stored, which is what, you know, all future generation and things are, are based on that unique seed. If you don't trust that manufacturer, then no, it's not secure. You have no assurance that this device is going to be, you know, working in the way that you require it to. You know, luckily, you know, most manufacturers are following this spec and they're big brands. So we're, we're assuming that's good. We then need to look at the fact that, as Aaron touched on earlier, right, these are very small bits of kit, very small chips. And because of the function that they're performing, they have to operate entirely, you know, separately and independently of that operating system. There can be no, you know, reliance on the OS's compute or storage because, you know, that in itself would be an avenue of attack. And cryptography is incredibly computationally expensive, right? So you've got tiny bits of kit doing difficult work. It's not as easy as developing, you know, software firmware for, uh, you know, typical, you know, IT usage. So we see quite a lot of bugs in TPM implementations. It's not uncommon. What is uncommon about this one is that it's, um, you know, it is a proof of concept vulnerability rather than just a bug that affects functionality. There is, you know, a potential avenue of exploitation here. The specifics of this one are around a, a function that you can call. So with a TPM, you basically send it a command that it returns your response. With this one, there's a command that you can send this TPM. And with the parameters that you give it, it's possible to access data. It's called a buffer overflow, access data outside of the bounds of that. And that can be both reading data outside of the bounds of the memory that you're supposed to access and also writing data as well. Now, this is only two bytes, right? So that's a very small amount of data, you know, two ASCII characters as we typically um, see them. So a tiny amount of data, and you'd have to rely on the fact that, you know, valuable sensitive data was in that memory segment next to the memory you're supposed to access, or that you could write something useful there. You know, the chances of this just corrupting the implementation entirely and just returning junk is, is really high. But the interesting point here is that, you know, it, it feasibly is possible, although we've not yet seen any sort of active exploitation of this. Okay, so we're very much in a proof concept, but it is possible phase. Buffer overflows feels like we're back in mid 2000s uh, suddenly here. So back to old school stuff. Absolutely right, and it's the fact that these, you know, like I said, them being so small and restricted, we can't have a lot of the typical modern buffer overflow mitigations like address-based randomization and things like that because you know these are really small, which is why we're seeing attacks from you know years ago resurfacing again. Yeah, exactly. What was old school is new school again, by the looks of it. So, all fun times. Fantastic. Uh, it feels, um, before we get into the, the way we can mitigate this recommendations, it does feel, you mentioned that your first point you around, do you trust the supplier of that chip? feels like there could be a supply chain issue in years down the line, potentially, you know, if, if someone can compromise the supply chain for, you know, the, the organization that's creating the vast majority of these chips or some of them. And that feels like it could be an avenue of, of attack way down the line, ultimately. So, yeah, one, one potential thing to, to consider, I guess, from the industry perspective. Well, let's talk about recommendations. So, Hugh, can you talk me through what the recommendations are here for organizations that are listening today? You know, what can they do about this threat? Is it something they should be worried about in the, in the immediate term? Uh, so, I, I'd like to think that, you know, from the explanation from a moment ago, it's not a hugely you know, critical thing right now. And certainly, you know, there are there are patches available now that you can fix this issue with. I'd be surprised if many organizations had TPM on their asset register as a, as a thing to consider patching. So, you know, it wouldn't be surprised me if that sort of thing was widely missed. It just goes to show, you know, the importance of really considering 
what these individual assets are, right? It is, as Aaron said earlier, basically a separate OS on a chip within your machine. So yeah, certainly it basically is a separate device. But yeah, you can pull these patches down from the um, OEM vendors and OS vendors and things like that. Might require you know a factory reset of the TPM to actually deploy that. But certainly it's possible. And it's something you know we should be doing. How about the physical access to devices? That's something we should be wary of, I guess. Yes. So obviously this requires that physical access, right? As we said, you know, the TPMs are designed to be very tamper resistant, right? You can't just hook a couple of probes up to them and, and completely nullify them. But good practice, right, around physical access restrictions, um, tamper resistant screws and, and things like that around really sensitive kit is certainly always good to consider. Perfect. So it is a relatively difficult attack by the sounds of it, which may or may not have great results if you do manage to exploit it, but nonetheless could be quite devastating if that was and that, you know, that was possible to achieve. Okay. And our final question to you, you are ShowCloud's VC, so is there a level of awareness that you need to provide to, you know, employees, whether or not you, if, for other CISOs that might be listening, or other people in, in security leadership positions, is this something you would give a, a briefing to on, up to the staff and say, look, this is what's happening, can you be aware of it? Yeah, so this is something I'd probably consider more along the lines of providing it to the IT team or security team or the network infrastructure team of your organization and say, look, TPMs are now a broadly used thing within our organization. And to Hugh's point, we should consider adding it to our information assets register. Let's treat them a bit like if you're an organization, for example, that uses HSMs, hardware security modules, which are entire physical machines dedicated to performing cryptographic functions on a larger scale. Let's bring TPMs in line with those in the way we handle the security and handle update processes and monitoring where we can. However, it's not something that I would necessarily broadcast out to the entire organization because it's a deeply and inherently technical topic, trusted platform modules, cryptography, they're complex topics. It goes over most people's heads. And actually, the end user has very little control over what their TPM is doing and by design, right? They're designed to operate on their own securely without you as an end user, even knowing that what's really happening, what's interacting with it. So I wouldn't necessarily send out a company-wide communication, but I'd start having the conversations with my security teams to talk about the use cases and the security bounds around how we treat our TPM and monitoring and patching of them. Perfect. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you, Hugh, for the input onto that one. We'll move on to the next topic. It's an interesting one. This is going to be an open discussion. Uh, so we'll have the, the remainder of the session chatting away through this one. Essentially, there has been a number of arrests uh, for a ransomware gang. And it turns out that one of the guys in that gang is an ethical hacker. And I guess that throws up the question around treading the line between good and bad and cybersecurity. So there's a fine line here, right? So we are doing authorized, I suppose, legal illegal activities, right? So if we didn't have the permission to do what we're doing, we consider it to be illegal in the vast majority of jurisdictions around the world. Now, clearly the skills are transferable. So if you want to turn bad, you could turn bad. And I guess the question or the discussion point here is, how does that get prevented? So how do we, as an industry, and this is probably more of an industry level discussion, how does that happen? Uh, you know, How do we make sure that these kind of transitions from good to bad don't work out? And but conversely, how do we encourage people to do bad to good? Right, so um, I'm aware there's a number of like individuals around the industry um, have been for a number of years that may have been wrong side and then now good side, gone legitimate if you like. So let's have a chat about that and talk about what things can we do as an industry, what kind of measures can we put in place, and so on and so forth. I'll throw it up to the floor, guys. So you or Aaron, whoever wants to go first, we'll have an open discussion on on this one if that's okay. 
point. Yeah, so I think there's there's two sides to this. There's what can employers do, which is a bit more specific to an organization, but also as an industry. So if we start with the industry, what can the industry do? Well, there are various pl- things already in place. The first and most obvious one is legislation and laws that prevent people from doing bad things. I know for me personally, you know, I'm very scared of the Computer Misuse Act here in the UK. If I had an inclination to do things maliciously, it would always be in the back of my mind that I could be prosecuted. Thankfully, you know, it's never been of interest to me to, to do things outside the bounds of law. But I know that if I did do something bad and I was caught, there would be severe consequences for that. They're also a bit more closer to the bounds of me as a professional within cybersecurity. There are various codes of conduct. So, for example, in, in the UK, if you take any of the CREST examinations to become, a, for example, a CREST registered penetration tester, then you have to sign their code of conduct, which also discusses around how you should act ethically within your job and uh, you could lose your accreditation if you act unethically. So if you are found to have done something maliciously beyond all the legal ramifications and potential jail time, you also have the loss of your certifications and your credibility within the industry. There are things that are out there to kind of keep people on the straight and narrow, as it were. Another one that perhaps is a byproduct of all of this is actually a lot of organizations now have bug bounty programs and responsible disclosure programs that make it fine for you to do some probing as long as you then act ethically off the back of it to responsibly disclose to it and perhaps even receive a reward if it's you know a major vendor and they, they have a specific care or need to care about security and they might reward you via a book bounty program. So there are plenty of avenues to direct people in the right direction as an industry to prevent them doing this for malicious purposes. Excellent. And it's worth mentioning, you talked about the um, Computer Misuse Act, and then there's a campaign, Cyber Up campaign, that is working to try and get it reformed into something a bit more useful for the modern era. I think it was written. I know it's had some amendments over the years. I think probably the last amendment was probably, I'm going to test my own knowledge here, probably about at least 10, 15 years ago, something like that. So it's old, and the principles of it not necessarily match with how the internet and how devices on the internet are used today. So, yeah, honourable mention for the Cyber Up campaign. I know they're working hard with and drive that through government. But maybe there is an element of governmental legislation needed here, Hugh. Perhaps we can talk about how other industries might operate from a, a licensing perspective. You know, for example, if you were working in the law, you know, the law, you have to go through the bar and become signed in. I don't know the exact terminology, but I know there's professional bodies that maintain a, a council of professionals, things like doctors, for example. Are we as an industry at that point? Is that the direction we should be going down now? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one, right? Because there's so many different avenues of directions that you can take a career in cybersecurity. And I'm not sure that a sort of one size fits all accreditation would necessarily be the right approach. I know that the NCSC, along with Crest and the Cyber Scheme, are currently looking at you know, putting together a, a chartered penetration tester scheme or, or something along those lines, which, yeah, would, I guess, bring us in line with, you know, the medical legal professions and things like that. I think because of the nature of this industry, how people get into it, you know, you don't become a doctor by spending time doing surgery at home and then deciding to qualify. Whereas, you know, things like hack the box, try hack me, bug bounties that we were talking about are really sort of prevalent ways of people first getting into the industry. So I think saying to someone, you can't touch anything until you've got this baseline accreditation potentially isn't the best approach because you know, I think most of us end up getting into this by sort of playing around with it first through legal means before taking it up as a career, which obviously isn't isn't analogous to those other professions. 
yeah, it's a little bit of a mindset, I think, a lot of time over knowledge. So, you know, asking the question of how does this work? What happens if I pull this? You know, what happens if I pull that? You know, they're the kind of things that dictate whether you're going to be technically good in this industry, I think. There's a lot of creativity in that. And I think one of the things when you, when you, if, you if you went down the professionalization route or more professionalization route of, you know, mandated licenses to be an ethical hacker, whatever it might be, is how do you maintain that creativity? whilst, you know, keeping that professionalism going. Because I think that's, you know, it feels like a lot of the good innovation in the industry comes around when you're right on the edge of what's potentially okay. You know, what potentially, you know, with we may be doing research nowadays as an industry that 10 years ago probably, well, it was kind of near enough to the edge now, whereas it's going to maybe it's going a bit more to the point of people understanding more a little bit what's going off. And 10, 15 years ago, that might not have been the case. It was just a bit more maverick in that respect. But a lot of good stuff happened back then. You know, a lot of good innovations that happened 10, 15 years ago, what shaped the industry to what it is now. And that level of creativity back then, had that not been there, it had been too rigid, I guess is what we're looking at here. It becomes a bit more rigid, a bit more structured. Would we have been in the position that we're in now, you know, with all the tooling that we've got and all the, all the good things that came out of that that shaped the way that we operate now? I think ultimately it comes down to, is it going to be worth it, right? Risk and reward, I think, you know, especially in the US and the UK, ethical hacking is well-paid, bug bounties are well-rewarding schemes. I can't see, you know, we even look at this case here, right? The, the guy that was caught, 2 million of profit from ransomware, but he got caught. So none of that benefit gets realized. Typically, I think, you know, the majority of, of cyber criminals that we see They've certainly got those skills and it's just a much easier, probably, you know, more financially viable long term to just get a job and be white hat. There's just not really much incentive to to break the law because it just there's really no need and there's a whole lot of risk involved. There is. I look, I've been around it'll be almost eleven years since I started this industry, but I don't have two million quid in the bank either. So I think criminality clearly pays quite well in this case, but you do run a high have two million in the bank anymore and he's got the rest of his life in prison so well yeah i do have the opportunity to put two million quid in the bank i suppose at some point that's, yeah, there's a slight difference and i guess in that case but look i think criminality pays too much probably i think it's well worth people's time to get into that at this point current time um but there is a humongous risk to getting caught yeah and rightly still getting caught and getting reprimanded for that and um, i guess there's multifacets here which is the less legitimate side of things, the criminality side of things needs to be much less lucrative. And I think as an industry, we do pretty well. Like you mentioned there, it's, it's a relatively well-paid industry. I guess we always, my, my wife always called this, but we live in a bit of a cloud over here outside of like normal industries and things like that. So I think it's paying particularly well, but it's, it's the criminality side of it is, is obviously highly lucrative if you don't get caught, basically a big if, right? So, okay, good. And um, Aaron, final question to you. Again, come back to you as a show clouds VC, so well, obviously this guy I'm thinking about the news article, he oh kind of I don't know I don't think there's a name against yet. They were working for uh, they were an ethical hacker, part of a DIVB in the Netherlands, and it's clearly gone rogue. They clearly would have had access to quite a lot of information. So from a CSOS perspective, how can you mitigate against this? And I appreciate that's a difficult question, but is there, is there things you can do, particularly maybe around the principle of lease privilege and so on and so forth? Yeah, there are absolutely things that can be done. And just for clarity, so the DIVD, which I think is the Dutch Institute for Vulnerability Disclosure is what it stands for. It's a volunteer organization primarily. So it's not like employees are signing contracts and uh, it's 
adherent to various policies internally necessarily. But the DIVD do have a code of conduct for their volunteer researchers that are conducting research on behalf of essentially a Dutch government funded organization where there is some structure and there are volunteers that go searching for vulnerabilities that they then have to responsibly disclose as part of that. And of course, if you've got a team of people who are going out there researching for uh, vulnerabilities on the internet, scanning various IP address ranges, there is going to be some sort of knowledge sharing going on within that organization. Now, an anonymous source did say that uh, in this case, the DIVD do have kind of isolation of particular research projects to only the people involved within it. So there shouldn't be that sharing of knowledge. And their internal investigation apparently did say that there was no evidence of abuse of any of the access that uh, this particular malicious researcher had. However, that only goes as far as, as so far as we trust the DIVD. But for organizations more generally, what would I recommend? Well, it comes down to two things, really. Initially, make sure you do your due diligence when hiring people. So the vetting, the making sure you understand their employment history, that's a given. But once someone is an employee, you've got the question of even if they are employed for a security purpose, a cybersecurity purpose, there still needs to be this application principle of least privilege. What does that professional need to do to do their job? And how do we make sure they can't abuse that power and do things outside of it? The typical and kind of broad way that this all fits into to how we achieve it within an organization still goes back to that really old acronym of IAAA, identification, authentication, authorization, and then critically at the end of all of that, the accountability or auditing. So making sure you know who that user is, you know how and where they should be able to authenticate to, and you confirm their identity when they're logging into a service, but also make sure that everything that even a security professional within your organization is doing has some level of auditing and accountability associated with it. So logs being generated, they still need to get approvals where appropriate. They can't just log into any system they want because they're a security professional, because otherwise you've got no way to have that traceability to understand what they've done, why they've done it, when they've done it. So even though security personnel are often in a trusted position within the organization, you should still have that principle of least privilege, that um, separation of duties, and where possible, have someone else able to check their work just to keep people on the straight and narrow, as it were, within the organization. Without being too overbearing is the key thing there as well, of course. Yeah, okay. So I'll hold measures to the right level, ultimately. Cool, guys. Um, I think that probably wraps us up for this month's episode. Thank you, as always, for joining me, you and, and Aaron, and, and for always providing the for providing the insights and the actual content that goes into this. I'm just here to ask the questions. Um, so again, thank you. We'll uh, catch all the listeners in a month's time. So thanks, guys. Thank you very much.